Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two people compulsively learn history and then spend that entire time making their spouses understand the stories and the nuances that they have learned, and they save it up and once a week tell the other one in one fell swoop what they have been learning. I'm Teresa. I'm Angie. And you are here. I was just thinking how when I word vomit these stories to my husband they always i feel like they are always so much more um articulate (laughs) and then you come to me and what do i just do i make you nervous you know i don't know i i the last week i was trying to say the word a complete contradiction to what i just said and couldn't remember the word contradiction and i'm not kidding when i tell you as soon as i walked away from our recording i was like the word is contradiction like, why was that hard for me? <laughs> Stupid. You know, anyway. there was there was a meme I saw that said, I am a smart, intelligent, educated woman. Also me. Wednesday. A freaking men. Wednesday no. should not be spelled the way that it is. I'm just let's talk it. about the silent G and through, shall we? Agreed. Thanks, English. Just, you know, whatever. I know. Um, Just here to keep us honest. That's all it's doing. Is it though? I feel like like honesty is not English as a language's best quality. You know? Thievery from other languages? Probably more so. Not only are we thieving from other languages, but you can never be actually sure how the word is truly spelled. My son yesterday spent a great deal of time trying to spell the word aren't, as in we aren't going there. No matter what I said, he was not in belief of how that word was spelt. (laughs) Yeah, I understand how that goes. Yeah. It was also midnight, so, you know, his brain's on finals fry, so he's he's pretty, uh, to be honest, if he remembers his name by the end of the day, I'll consider it a win. He's just got to put his name on the paper, get some points. That's what he told me this morning. He's like, these are my three hardest finals. If I get this grade, I'll get this grade. If I get this grade, I'll get this grade. And if I fail this, I'll still get a D in the class. And I was like, that's that's not that's not what I was wanting to hear from you, sir. Um, <laughs> get it together, please, and thank you. <laughs> what a nerd. I'm super duper excited to tell you my story. I can't okay. wait to hear it. I'm I'm stoked. Like, please okay. and thank you. Let me let me know it. So, um, before I tell you my sources, I'm going to tell you that I discovered this story through the TikTok user Hedge Betty, um, who does you you've sent me a few of her TikToks, but she does a lot of book related TikToks and a lot of. Um, where she plays both characters and it's like scenes scenes from a story right like this is how you um this is how you share tell your woman you love her and he, she's always wearing like the frilly fabio shirt do you know the one i'm speaking of yes yes i do okay or I, it's so like I'm, you know what when your main character is being held captive by the yes uh, uh yeah yeah so i'm sincerely hoping that you did not see this one but I, as soon as she started speaking, I was like, immediate to the internet, I need to know what is happening here, like, right now. So, all that being said, 
My sources are um, encyclopedia.com, the Jewish Women's Archive called jwa.org, which is fascinating, and um, I I could not recommend that, that source high, any higher. <laughs> A brief excerpt from the memoir of Leonard Silman. A blog by the University of Cincinnati Libraries by Susan Reeler. She dated this May 2016. And then a local Cincinnati website that does, um, I'm going to call them like blog casts because they're not, they're more blog style, but spoken like a podcast, if that makes any sense. Um, so like so a video a blog. Well, almost, but no video. So it's like an article, but with with words that you can't read, um, done by a local radio station, which makes total sense. The, so you do see I a picture smell and then you hear the story. No, I understand what I just said was absolute word salad, but it like the only way to describe it is you get a video, an audio link, you hit play, hit play, and then you get to view her photo while it's playing. But they're not; it's not like a YouTube video. Okay, I'm. Yeah, you know anyway. what? Just just go on. Yeah, it's a local radio station. Um, the the article is called "The Story of Local Girl Turned Broadway Star and Torch Singer." So now that the bulk of my sources are out of the way, I'm going to tell you the story of Elizabeth Lloyd Holzman, better known as Libby Holman. She was an American socialite, an actress, a singer, and if that wasn't enough, she was also big into activism of multiple kinds um i already mentioned that i i learned about her through our tiktok friend um libby as she is called for the bulk of her life was born on may 23rd in 1904 in cincinnati ohio to a rather prosperous lawyer and stockbroker his name was alfred alfred holzman and his wife rachel florence workham holzman her family was Jewish, but she was not raised religiously. In fact, her parents were practicing Christian scientists, which I don't know why I didn't, like, my brain did not realize. I thought that that form of religion kind of showed up in the 90s, but this is 1904, and now I feel very silly because I knew that, but I just, my brain didn't, the timeline <laughs> didn't, it didn't you know, happen until Tom Cruise did, you know? But Tom Cruise was Scientology. Yeah. And so that's how, like, my brain is so muddled on this that I was very confused by all of it. But regardless, she is all a right, Jewish fair. descent. And that's okay. that's the point. Okay. So before Libby even turns a year old, her uncle embezzles about a million dollars from the family firm. I mean, why not? Which, I know, right? Which is just over $18 million today because I knew you were going to need to know what a million dollars in 1904 would be. It's $18 million today. In doing so, he basically leaves the family high and dry. And um, as one can imagine, her once very well-off family is now rather destitute. And it's around this point when her father changes the family name from Holzman, H-O-L-Z-M-A-N, to Holman, H-O-L-M-A-N as a step to getting the family kind of back on on top kind of back on the right track rebranding you know what yeah okay, that's I'm that is exactly what i was thinking rebranding yeah. and it, it made me wonder what their that year's christmas cards look like 
<laughs> like it's, a total rebrand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, Holman was able to graduate from the University of Cincinnati with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1923. When she then moved to New York City to pursue a career in acting and singing, and her first gig was with a touring company of Channing Pollock's in a play called The Fool. Okay. All right. Her Broadway debut was in 1990, or excuse me, 1925 in the I'll play The Sapphire Ring. That changed, but we're good now. Yeah, we're in the right, we're in the right century. It's 1995. She's gone. She's performed in a touring company and she has also made her Broadway debut. By this point, she is seen as a budding talent, and by 1929, in her performance in a show called The Little Show, she could officially be called a star. This show would give her the hit song Moanin' Low and also the prestigious title of Torch Singer. She was considered the master of the Torch song and never gave up that that hold on that genre. And if you're curious as to what a Torch Singer is... Because Thank you. That I was, was the look on my like, face. Huh, I wonder what that is. A torch singer is someone, often but not always, a woman who specializes in singing torch songs. The definition of a torch torch song is basically sentimental love songs that are typically expressing unrequited or lost love. It's often done in a bluesy, jazzy, very sultry way. It really kind of brings in those sensual tones. Think of women like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. Um, a man that was known for his torch songs would be Frank Sinatra, which I thought was really interesting. But needless to say, she becomes like the queen of the torch song and does not ever relinquish that title. We need to bring that back, but maybe we should do it for, I, I keep it for unrequited love, but maybe spurned love, like maybe the breakup song, you know? Yeah, like, like I could imagine your Taylor album. Yeah. Yes. I, I too, I agree with you. And in fact, while she didn't record a ton, a ton, a ton of music for us to be able to listen to, you can actually go online and hear her numbers. And they're, they're pretty, they're pretty fun. At this time, though, I would like to take a brief moment to give some descriptions of her from those, from her contemporaries, her friends, her coworkers, things like that. Um, Leonard Silman, who was an American Broadway producer had this to say about her in his memoir. Now, just bear with me because it's a little long, but I guarantee you it's worth it, and it's actually the reason I needed to know more about this woman. Quote, She was a large girl with a fuzzy head of hair. She had slits for eyes and a bee-stung mouth and a somewhat unreliable singing voice. When she felt good, she was a fabulous singer. When she was not fabulous, she was flat. She went around in a radial deray in an overcoat made from the pellets of one fox and several rabbits with rabies. First of all, unclear how you knew the rabbits had rabies, but there's that. He's the kind of person. Okay, so when I was in college, someone said, who's your roommate? And I described this woman. Um, I described her as a, a rather large woman, you know, the one that sits in the front row of the classes with the low cut jeans and the thongs and has a lot of eye makeup. And they went, oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. And they stopped and they <laughs> said, please do not ever describe me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you and Mr. Silman would be great friends. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's just like, 
okay, what's the quickest way to describe this person? Oh, these are the most defining characteristics. And it's like, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. And I, I hate this for myself. Thank you. And I would kindly ask that you forget what I look like. Thank you so yeah. much. <laughs> um, he goes on to say that from all this, I realize this is someone still speaking. It may be difficult to conjure up an image of a rather fey, irresistible enchantress, but that's exactly what she was. She could exert a strange fascination. There was a boy in the show we all called Horseface. He had such a lech for Libby that he followed her around like a puppy, which meant following me around because by this time I was never behind, far behind the witch myself. So she could roll 20s on charisma. That's what I'm hearing. Um, excuse me. Okay. He goes on to say, after the show each night, the three of us would sit around till dawn, drinking milk, eating coleslaw and hating life. Milk and <laughs> coleslaw. Yeah. Okay. Gross. I mean, you did say this was but, the 20s. Know? It was the 20s. It was a different time. The 1920s, not the 2020s. Um, I can't say I've ever eaten milk and drink or eaten coleslaw and drink milk at the same time. But yeah, yeah, that's, you know, they could be looking for a themed party idea. And (laughs) Great Gatsby is without if you reach, you know, maybe coleslaw. Let's do it. It was at one of these bull and beef sessions, he says, one night that Libby got up, walked to the writing desk, and proceeded to write a letter. She put it in an envelope and left the room. I picked up the envelope and saw that it had been addressed to, of all people, Miss Libby Holman. Naturally, I read the letter, and it said, (laughs) My divine Libby, how can you tolerate such two stupid people such as Leonard and Horseface? They are, without a doubt, the most dreadful most common and vulgar people I have ever seen. I love you. Divine Libby, wonderful Libby, beautiful Libby, love, love Libby. <laughs> oh. I, that was, that was the phrase that I was like, yes, I must, I, I need to know more about this woman. Dollars to donut. She did that for every party she was at. And that was the only one that was recorded. Uh, well, so allow me to tell you what another contemporary said. Howard Dietz, who, according to Britannica, Britannica.com, was by all accounts a very interesting fellow himself. He was an American executive and songwriter. And, quote, this is um, Britannica.com quote about him. After graduating from Columbia University in 1917, Dietz joined the Philip Goodman Advertising Agency, where he was assigned to devise a trademark for Goldwyn Pictures. Dietz used Columbia's lion mascot as an inspiration for the Goldwyn Studios' Roaring Lion trademark, which thereafter appeared at the beginning of each film, including those made after Goldwyn Pictures merged with two other studios in 1924 to become MGM. MGM. Mm -hmm. Along with that, an additional fun fact about Dietz is that also suggested the lion's accompanying Latin motto, Aris Gradia Artists, Art for Art's Sake. Dietz himself joined Goldwyn Pictures in 1919 and soon became the director of advertising and publicity, and that was a post he retained in MGM until he retired in 1957, which I thought was wild. Yeah. But this is what he had to say about Libby. Quote, No one in the theater was more discussable than Libby Holman, who came from Cincinnati and was game for anything. 
She did outrageous things. For example, one Friday, she said she was tired of being nice and proposed that on the weekend at Henri Souvain's, to which we were both invited, we should act disagreeably instead of our usual selves. I said, I don't think I could carry it off. Well, try, said Libby. Mabel showed us the garden, and Libby said, I hate flowers. Henri, who is is a well-known composer, played one of his songs, and Libby said, I don't like what you're playing. Mabel caught on to her line and said to Libby, well, I don't like you. And it was the beginning of a great friendship. (laughs) This woman is a walking riot. That is all I have to say. And please allow me to tell you her nickname. She was referred to, according to the Jewish Women's Archive, as a dark purple menace. Oh, how do you get that? Well, her unusual bass contralto, Betty Boop lips, and untraditional beauty would create what Times critic Brooks Atkinson would label as the dark purple menace. It also could have had something to do with her wild personal life or her unique singing style. But either way, I think all of those things add up to equal her delightful nickname. I am not striving hard enough because I've never had menace in my name before. No. You know? I've got I've got new goals. I've been called trouble many a times, yes. Chaos even, but never a menace that I know of. I'll have to check around. <laughs> <laughs> Starting in the early 40s, she began researching American folk and blues songs at the Library of Congress where she used the Lomax field recordings. At this point, Libby meets Leadbelly and Josh White, both um, African-American singers and musicians, respectively, at a Greenwich Village nightclub. For the next four years, her accompanist was White. He played the guitar. And he interested her in adapting songs previously sung by only Black performers, building on her earlier crossover career to to create just these amazing pieces with him. I found a source that... That I couldn't corroborate, but I thought it was fun to include that said White and Libby became the first mixed race male and female artists to ever perform together, um, recording and touring in the United States in previously segregated venues. Nice. It is also said that during this time with him, if the venue that they were recorded was supposed to be performing at that evening had a segregation policy or a no people of color allowed she would toss a fit until either they did or she wouldn't perform i love that i we need more of that more of that right that that accuracy 100 holman was married three times her first marriage was to zachary smith reynolds a tobacco heir heir from the winston-salem area of north carolina Reynolds was so enamored with her that he followed her to shows, you know, because it's the 20s and he's a pilot and he can just do that even all the way to Europe and insisted she marry him. There's just a couple of problems with this. Um, first, He's marrying the menace. <laughs> he loves her. What's uh, her full first, title? The what purple menace? Dark, the dark purple menace. Dark purple menace. Mm hmm. But, like, there's a couple problems. First, Libby enjoys relationships with both genders and was happily seeing Louisa Carpenter, who was an an aviatrix herself and an heir to the DuPont family fortune. 
you can imagine that this relationship was the talk of the town and Broadway, especially in 1930. Um, We'd be talking about it now. I know. A hundred years right? ago? Come on. Right. Um, and then the other small problem is that Reynolds, he, well, he is actually married himself. Um, you know, but that's okay because it was just an arranged marriage that he didn't pick and he didn't really like that wife, evidently. So he pursued Miss Libby to the best of his ability. And when I say pursued, I probably mean closer to stalk and bother. But, you know, if you're you know, super hot and rich, can you stalk? I, you can. You can. But I mean, yeah, poor, yeah, I poor got joke you. there. I knew what you meant. Um, can I just this this drove me nuts, and I'm so jealous. Can we just take a moment to talk about how it seems that every young person in the 1920s had a tragic backstory, but is also the heir or heiress to something? The ones we know about. That's that's typically yeah. what we record. You know, we don't record the people who really lost it all in the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, we're. Yeah, so here we are. I'm just a little bit jealous that that was such a seems such a glamorous time, and we we don't get to see it. But anyway, Miss Carpenter, you know her lover, tells her that perhaps it's a good idea that she marry the Reynolds boy. So his first marriage ends, and his second marriage begins only a few days later on November the sixteenth in nineteen thirty one. However, well, no it's overlap. not a good one. No, yeah, no overlap. It's not a good one, and his family can't really stand her, but she doesn't seem to care one way or the other. And it's a short-lived marriage anyhow, because Reynolds was found dead in July of 1932. By whose hand? Was it the menace, the dark purple menace? <laughs> well, his death was ruled as a suicide. But let me say that it is worth noting that even after being presented with accusations of tampered evidence... Two anti-Semitic grand juries approved murder charges against Holman, who had been with Reynolds at the time of the shooting, and also against Ab Walker, Reynolds' best friend. Holman was accused of murder, but was acquitted after a, a, quite a sensation. But that's only because the Reynolds family didn't like her, but they hated this type of publicity even more, so they basically dropped the case. And due to their influence and power, it kind of just you know, goes away, brushed under the carpet. But at this time, she is also given birth to her only biological child, Christopher Topper Reynolds. Two really interesting things happen at this time. She gets all of firstly, the dude's money. <laughs> firstly, the newspapers went to town with her caricature and grossly embellished her to look awful and additionally made her baby look, shall we say, darker than he should have been. Oh. Yeah. I fancy that this suited her just fine, as per comments from the Jewish Women's Archives, um, and I'm going to paraphrase this quote, but they basically say that after her moment in 20 1929 when she first sang her trademark song of Moan and Low in The Little Show, which in that she actually played a two-timing, this is their quote, not mine, mulatto lover, many people believed that Holman was a person of color who passed as white. Because of her rich black hair, dark skin, and, quote, racial style of singing, she always insisted nothing could have pleased her more. Inspired by her musical admiration for singers such as Ethel Waters, Holman cultivated racial ambig ambiguity in her art as well, which I think is really cool. So for her to be characterized as something other than what she was, 
they couldn't have done it worse because she was delighted by it. That was all good by her. So I was like, you're my hero. I love this. Mm. The second interesting thing to happen at this time is that the Reynolds family actually acknowledges the boy and sets him up with a trust fund and mom is well cared for. There's no, I don't know, it's like hush money. I don't know what the deal is, but the boy has a trust fund and mom never has to work again in her life. However, that doesn't stop her. She continues to work because, you know, in the 40s is when she starts to tour with Mr. White. It is also fun to note that at the time of her arrest for said quote-unquote murder, her, Louisa Carpenter, her lady lover, paid her bail and the two went into hiding together for a bit. And why is this not a movie? <laughs> that being said, there these events would inspire at least two Hollywood films, one starring Jane Harlow in 1935 called Reckless, and um, written on the wind in 1956. So uh, that's pretty cool. Her second marriage was to Ralph Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S, in 1939, but sadly he died in 1945. This marriage would be marked with grief as he spent most of it in the Second World War and committed suicide not long after he returned. Oof. Yeah. In 45 and 47, she adopted two more boys at birth. Family life would again be marked with sadness in 1950 when her oldest son, Topper, that was his nickname, died while on a mountain climbing trip to Mount Whitney. She had given him her blessing for both him and his friend to go and would never forgive herself. And this caused the beginning of a pretty significant depression in her life. Her third marriage was to a fellow named Louis Shanker, S-C-H-A-N-K-E-R. I've had a hard time with that the whole time. And that happened in 1960. This, okay, it's worth telling that this, while it's interesting, sometime before this marriage, Libby takes a second longtime lover in a woman called Jane Bowles who was the wife of Paul Bowles, an openly gay actor. So I'm a little confused. You're, you're a beard. <laughs> it, they're, both, they're both not in it for the sex. They're in it for the, the protection of the title. That's, that's what I was thinking as well. Um, makes perfect sense. I'm sure it was quite a um, genuine relationship, actually. But he, he, they didn't love each other physically, I guess. Um, well, they must have at some point, though, because... Quote, when Jane and Libby met with a fiery mutual attraction, there was no issue. The two of them lived together for years, raising their children. Jane's eventual stroke, combined with the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., led Libby into alcoholism, which is an absolute bummer. But like I said, she was an activist. So after the death of her son, Christopher, she created the Christopher Reynolds Foundation to support equality, international disarmament, and the resolution of environmental problems. Which, over time, this foundation would narrow its scope to more specific things like relations between Cuba and the U.S. She would additionally contribute to the defense of Benjamin Spock, the pediatrician and writer. He was arrested for taking part in anti-war demonstrations. So she had a lot of things on her plate. In the 1950s, 
Holman worked with her accompanist, accompanist Gerald Cook, who was also of African American descent. And um, this is I again mentioned that whatever venue didn't wouldn't take him, she would either not perform at or throw a fit until they did. And they Kirk, excuse me, Cook and her specifically worked on researching re and rearranging what they called Earth music, which was primarily bluesy and spiritual. And they were linked to the African-American community. She was involved in the civil rights movement and became a close friend and associate of Martin Luther King Jr., which is why she was so devastated at his death. Mm. And additionally, through her foundation, she provided funds for Martin Luther King's trip with his wife, Coretta, to meet followers of Mahatma Gandhi, whom he referred to as the guiding light of our technique of nonviolent social change. Wow. Right? Her third husband, who I mentioned earlier, Lewis, would outlive her because in 1971, at just 67 years old, Libby was found dead in her Rolls Royce. The cause was carbon monoxide poisoning and was not a surprise to her friends and loved ones. However, her two adopted sons, Tim and Tony, survived her and both received a million dollars each from her estates. With most of her other belongings and wealth... Um, turning over to the foundation that she had created in honor of her oldest son. She was known for her lush voice and her shows, her her attitude, her larger-than-life life. And she might also be the reason that we have set strapless gowns today. Really? Mm-hmm. Would you care to see some photos of this vixen? <laughs> You know, I'm here for it. I'll be honest. Okay. Let's see if I can show you the right screen. Because that would be fantastic. Get okay, so she is showing me a picture of... Oh, gosh. This looks like it was taken in the 30s or 40s, but there is... She this is, would have been in the 40s. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she's wearing this fantastic 40s gown, uh, knee length. Um, she's standing looking... Very happily at a man, black man. That's Mr. Cook. Mr. Cook, who has his leg mm -hmm. up on a chair. He's got the guitar oh. slung over his knee. I'm sorry. That's Josh White. That's Mr. Josh White. I, okay. I think I said Mr. Cook. Did I say Mr. Cook? You did, you did say Mr. Cook. Yeah. So that's uh, so Josh, Mr. White or Josh White? Did I combine Josh names? White. Josh White. Yeah. Um, he's playing. She is clearly enjoying it. She's got some beautiful slingbacks on. Um, and there is a crowd... <laughs> of what looks like people on risers like they are singing but they are not singing they are just kind of gawking in the background um yep but that is a fun photo right like you can tell they they had a very endearing relationship i think yeah uh here's a, a still of her okay so she does have a full-on betty boop look she's got the big <laughs> rosebud rosebud lips that Probably had a bit of liner help to make him that shape. I'm I'm not even going to kid. She got oh. the pencil thin eyebrows, the uh, finger waved hair. Yeah, finger waved hair. Very close. Honestly, it is. It looks like the inspiration for Betty Boop. It really does. Yeah. Um, here's another. I love this one. This that one. She's. Neckline. I don't even know what how to describe that neckline, but it's. It's like a super scoop neck, but it has like a collar in the back that comes up. Um, honestly, this would have been like the envy of the 
40s prom dress. Um, Mm -hmm. She has a kind of disdainful look as she's looking over her shoulder, the front of her collar, collar, scoop, whatever we're calling it. It has what looks like carnation flowers in it, but I'm assuming they're fake, but it's a fabulous gown. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a, a couple more. I love the eyebrows in this one. Does that not scream that era? Oh, it that, does. The eyebrows are pencil thin, but like 17 inches long. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 90s thin. The you know, mm-hmm. I have taken some hydroxy cut and done my eyebrows and then drawn mm-hmm. them to my hairline. To my hairline, yep. And then this photo is of her and her second husband. When they were vacationing in Bermuda. Fabulous. Her second husband was quite the looker. <laughs> he was. He's the one you'd want to see in the family album is this is your granddad. Oh, for sure. He's got the, the beautiful chiseled face, the slick back hair. He's wearing what we can only describe as um, high, high rise waist pants. Yeah, high waist, um, wide legged, white mm-hmm. pants that have a nice Deplete. solid crease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, she, I just absolutely love that image. So those are the ones I found of her. There's plenty more online. You can go see, like I said, you can listen to her music. You can see more of her her photos. You, you might even be able to watch a couple of the films she was in. But um, I just, I had myself an absolute blast with this woman. So that is the story of <laughs> Libby Holman, who wore a pelt made out of rabid rabbits (laughs) i think we actually have time for my story well i'm here for it okay so all right i'm excited i'm so excited for this one you have no idea um okay is it the story of libby holman because i was generally so afraid no no it's (laughs) not saw the same tiktok okay so this is phyllis latour doyle okay my sources AlmightyGirl.com, Phyllis Latour Doyle, The Forgotten Spy Whose Knitting Helped Pave the Way for D-Day, The Guardian Obituary, member of the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War who was parachuted into France a month before D-Day by Michael Smith. Okay. And I tried to like find information on her, like be a podcast and things like that, as is my want. And no, they do not exist. Of course not. There's like casual mention in like one or two, but that's it. Um, So let me start out with Phyllis, always known as Pippa, was born in Durban, South Africa, April 8th, 1921. And her French father, Philippe Latour, a doctor in a part of what was then Equatorial French Africa, is now the Republic of Condo. He's killed in tribal conflict when Pippa turned three months old. Hmm. And her mother, Louise, subsequently remarries, but she dies in 1925. After growing up in the care of an aunt and uncle in the Belgian Congo, Pippa went first to Kenya to complete her education and then goes to the UK. So she joins the auxiliary, the women's auxiliary air force at age 20 in 1941 to work as a flight mechanic, but... Her fluency in French led her to being recruited to the SOE two years later to serve with F section. Nice. A close family friend, her godmother's father, whom she viewed as a grandfather, had been shot by the Nazis, and she's eager to support the war effort however she can. 
Doyle immediately accepted the SOE's offer and began the extensive training. In addition to learning about encryption and surveillance, the trainees had to pass grueling physical tests. And I loved this part. Doyle described how they were taught to get out of high windows, down drain pipes, how to climb over roofs without being caught. And all of this was taught by a cat burglar who'd been released from jail for this purpose. (laughs) That's magnificent. This is literally Suicide Squad when they're going and rounding everybody up. Or leverage, yeah. Yeah. Do the thing. Find the people that can do it. So she's first deployed to Aquitaine in Vichy, France, where she worked for a year as a spy using the codename Genevieve. Her most dangerous mission, however, began May 1st, 1944, when she jumped out of a U.S. Air Force bomber and landed behind enemy lines in Nazi-occupied Normandy in preparation for D-Day. Ah! So she's posing as this woman, Paulette Latour, a teenage girl whose family moved to the countryside to escape the Allied bombing. She cycles around the area, attempting to sell soap to German soldiers while chatting with them to find out what they were doing and where their units are based. Quote, the men sent behind or just before me were caught and executed, she later said. I was chosen for that area because I would arouse less suspicion. Mm hmm. So she would think by this time, history has proven time and time again that women arouse less suspicion, but we still haven't figured it out. No, we haven't. And the SOE really (laughs) capitalized on that time and time again. They just like let the ladies go in and get her done. Mm hmm. So she's on this team that they called the Verger team, and they were involved in organizing the marquee of operations against the German troops. They would send daily reports to London that were encrypted using one-time ciphers to help the Allied commanders plan their operations. Latour works for a dude whose codename is Scientist, and he's his actual name is Claude de Baisac. Butchered that. De Baisac puts Latour to work in the north of the regions between Caen and Cotenin, the Cotenin Peninsula, Okay. Um, I'm sure you know exactly where that is. You vacation there all the time. Um, (laughs) When the Allied forces landed there on June 6th, the team operating between the Contenin Peninsula and the Les Lagas area are cutting the railway line between the Cannes and the Ver and ambushing German officers while traveling between their various headquarters. Over that next week, they cut the main railway line running east west through Normandy between Paris and Granville on the coast and reported the location of the headquarters of the SS Panzer Division, enabling Allied aircraft to attack it. They also end up doing great things like they're cutting underground telegraph cables and forcing the Germans to send their high-grade teleprinter messages between Hitler and the German frontline commander Rommel over the airwaves, and this allows them to be deciphered at Bletchley Park. Nice. And I heard that. I was like, yes, this is great. I'm all for this. So over the next few months, the Maquis, working with Scientist 2 Network, destroyed around 500 enemy vehicles. Nice. Which is, I am here for the irregular warfare. Mm-hmm. 100%. So several of the articles about her talked about how she concealed her codes because each of these codes has a one-time use cipher. And she she says, quote, I always carried knitting 
because my codes were on a piece of silk. I had about 2000 I could use. When I used a code, I would just pen prick it to indicate it had gone and wrap the piece of silk around a knitting needle and put it in a flat shoelace, which I used to tie up my hair. Coded messages mm -hmm. took about a half hour to send and the Germans could identify where the signal was sent from in an hour and a half. So Doyle had to move constantly to avoid detection. At times she stayed with allied sympathizers, but often had to sleep in forests to forage for food. During her months in Normandy, Doyle sends 135 messages conveying the valuable information on Nazi troop positions. All of this is used to help the forces prepare for the Normandy landings on D-Day and the subsequent military campaign. Doyle's mission continued until France's liberation in August of 1944. She started in May, which means in 117 days, she sent 135 messages. Cool. Like, and wow. I had to sit there and count all of the days because I was like, oh, yeah, of course, 135, 135 messages. Great. But it's like you recognize, no, really, she's putting in the work. She's not taking a day off. No, she's not. During her mission, Latour was arrested twice, but managed to fool her captors into believing her cover story. Quote, I remember being taken to a station and a female soldier made us take off our clothes and see if we were hiding anything. She was looking suspiciously at my hair, so I pulled off my lace and shook my head. That seemed to satisfy her. And then I tied my hair back up with the lace. It was a nerve-wracking moment. Oh, I could imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the war, she was made an MBE. And I had to look that up. It was a member of the Order of the British Empire and awarded the Croix de Guerre avec Pomme. Subsequently, she marries someone named Patrick Doyle, an Australian engineer, and they live in Kenya, Fiji, and Australia. They had two daughters and two sons. Mm. Following their divorce in 1975, so it was a bit rocky, she moved to Auckland, New Zealand, and never told anyone of her, explo her exploits in, in wartime France. She did not collect her medals until her children read about her on the internet and insisted that she do so. That is not the first time we've heard that. No. Um, she responded with, I didn't have good memories of the war, so I didn't bother telling anyone what I did. Yeah, that seems to be like, whether it's because I didn't have good memories or because my work was either so important or so secretive that telling my story would either A, not be believed or shouldn't be told. Yeah. Is, yeah, is such a high. Yeah. Wow. OK. Mm -hmm. So for 70 years, her contributions to the war effort went largely unheralded, but she was finally given her due in 2014 when she was awarded France's highest honor, the Chevalier of the Legion of Honor. One of her daughters predeceased her, but she is survived by her three other children. And presenting the Chevalier of Legion of Honor by Doyle, the French ambassador, Lauren Contini, he commended her courage during the war, stating, I have a deep admiration for her bravery, and it will be with great honor that I will present with her the award of Chevalier d'Ordre de National de la Légion d'Honneur, <laughs> France's <laughs> highest declaration. I shook my head the entire time I was saying that because that is likely not how it's supposed to sound. Phyllis you did good. Oh, I, I tried. <laughs> Phyllis Latour died October 7th, 
2023 at age 102. She was the last remaining female member of F-Section, the branch of the SOE in the Second World War that organized resistance operations in France. What a badass. Yeah. And so I have some photos of her that are just fun for me. <laughs> oh, she's so she looks so sweet. Yeah, so she's just this sweet young woman. She's looking off into the looking up into the distance. Um, dark hair, what I presume are bright red lips because it's a black oh, and white photo. Those are perfect lips too. Like oh, never yeah. have I seen more perfectly placed lipstick in my life. And she's she, even got the 40s bouffant hair. Like Oh yeah. And she looks like she doesn't yeah. like lipstick is probably the only makeup she's wearing. Mm-hmm. But I'm that's all that, that she right needs. Yet. No, because she's gorgeous, yeah. And then this is a picture of when she got received the award. (laughs) And so you just see this sweet little girl. I love that her hair has only changed in color. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Same haircut, but it's just white. And she has her medals pinned to her pink Pink knitted sweater. (laughs) Like it's just because honestly. Yeah. I don't like I'm would she have gotten a uniform in the SOE? She's not, she's, she's bombing around France, like as a spy, she's not going to be wearing her dress, her class A uniform. Yeah. I'm, I am now curious if they ever get one. I'm going to assume if she just like quietly went to about her normal business, I would think that she probably didn't have a uniform and and but either way i think at 102 you can wear whatever you want right <laughs> but she, i love I, her sweater i i loved her and it made me look up the other times we've covered soes we caught we covered colin colin govins episode 48 and then you did a great job on nancy wake in episode 21 and there's a forgotten episode of eileen griffith that will will likely touch base on you know, in coming episodes, but I absolutely adored all of this. Uh, I just, I want them all in the same room at the same time to like compare stories. Oh, (laughs) and you know that that happened. You know that Eileen Griffin, Colin Gubbins, Nancy Wake, we didn't do Virginia. What is Virginia's last name? Virginia Wall? The French, the, the one who had the, the missing leg. Yeah, I I feel like that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar, but I'm not a hundred percent. I might be thinking of um. Oh, it. I think Virginia is the first. Virginia Hall. I was right. I just because I had to look it up. So yeah, Virginia. Yeah. Hall. But like we've never covered Virginia Hall, but I just fangirl her so hard. It's it's really hard not to fangirl every one of these ladies. Like, what they did in, in that whole idea of they never expect it to be the women. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, it's just, ugh, they're beguiling, I guess would be the right word. <laughs> and then to have somebody like Colin Gubbins who believes in using women because they're not paid attention to, because they're easily dismissed and ignored, and to have these women really bow to conquer. Mm-hmm. really subvert the systems that they're up against. It's just, ugh, I'm all for it. 
Agreed. 100%. Get it, ladies. Get it. Yeah. But that is that is the story of the woman who used knitting to spy, which is just... The best? Yeah. Yeah. Literally the best. Oh, she's so sweet. I can't... I can't get over the look on her face in that picture. I know. She's just so, like, effusive, and you can just tell that she probably makes a mean cookie and gives a great hug. I was just thinking, she has probably given some hugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I love her. What a fun story. Yeah. Well, if you've enjoyed this romp through history and you're thinking... Holy crap, these two women sound like absolute badasses, and I'm stoked that I got to hear them. Wait till you hear next week, because hot dang, I know I've got something up my sleeve, and I know you're going to be stoked to hear it. And so on that note, rate, review, subscribe, tell your people that we'd love to chat with them. You can email Mm -hmm. us at unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. And send goodbye. us a, a, a flare. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we honestly, you just, we we haven't got any homing pigeons this week. So could you, could you send one? Yeah. Let us know you're or, okay. Or fox, a fax. <laughs> I'd rather have the fox. You send her the Me faxes, too. I will take the fox. I want the fox. Here we are. All right, if I get multiple, <laughs> they'll go to Angie. And on that note, <laughs> goodbye. Bye-bye.